HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. Wisconsin cheesemakers produce over 600 varieties, types, and styles of cheese. That's twice as much as any other state. Learn more about Wisconsin's cheesemaking history at wisconsincheese.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Lisa Held coming to you live from Full Service Radio at the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. And you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. My guest today is Bren Smith, a former commercial fisherman turned ocean farmer who pioneered a system called restorative 3D ocean farming. His book, Eat Like a Fish, came out earlier this year and he's also the founder of GreenWave, a nonprofit organization that trains other ocean farmers. Bren, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's going to be fun. Yeah, so I wish you were here with me in studio, but where are you calling in from? Sure, I'm calling in from uh, uh, right where I hatch hatchery is, New Haven, Connecticut, and then up, up the road in a uh, place called the Thimble Islands. I got my farm. Okay, and is GreenWave uh, also based in New Haven? Yeah, yeah, we're in this uh, little neighborhood of, of Fairhaven. It's actually one of the most low-income neighborhoods on the East Coast, and um, we decided to put our hatchery here in our offices because it's a, you know, the land-based infrastructure for ocean farming. We can put it in places where folks need jobs, and you know, hopefully get some social justice social justice on the plate. Interesting. So I want to let I definitely want to talk more about that. Um, I have a million things I want to talk to you about in terms of. <laughs> your methods and um, the work you're doing. But I thought to frame the discussion a little bit, it would be helpful to start off by addressing the newest report that was just released by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change on the state of the oceans. So basically, it's a lot of bad news. Um, 
I, I'm just going to read this quick snippet from the New York Times article on the report, um, and then I, I would love to just get some of your thoughts uh, to kind of frame this discussion. So it says, for decades, the oceans have served as a crucial buffer against global warming, soaking up roughly a quarter of the carbon dioxide that humans emit from power plants, factories, and cars, cars and absorbing more than 90% of the excess heat trapped on Earth by carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. Without that protection, the land would be heating much more rapidly. But the oceans themselves are becoming hotter, more acidic, and less oxygen-rich as a result. If humans keep pumping greenhouse gases into the atmosphere at an increasing rate, marine ecosystems already facing threats from seaborne plastic waste, unsustainable fishing practices, and other man-made stresses will be further strained. So that's super daunting, right? Mm -hmm. what, was, what was your reaction to this news about the state of the oceans? Yeah, so I had just come back from uh, Alaska um, when this came out and was up there with uh, Dune Lankard, who's a lifelong um, gillnetter uh, in, the, in the salmon fishery. Okay. And um, he asked us up here because he called, called me one day. He's like, Bren, the salmon didn't come back this year. This was last year. Right. And um, so sort of, he said it's the worst season in 100 years for him. And so, so I went up there, and I, w I hadn't been in Alaska in 20 years since I used to fish out of, mm. um, I was in Bristol Bay, and then I was in the Bering Sea for a bunch of years. And um, the, uh, it was stunning how things were being ravaged. So, like, the glaciers, the, so much fresh water was coming down that the salmon were, were um, uh, uh, actually not coming up into the, the bay, the water temps hit 70 degrees for a three-week period, which is absolutely unprecedented. At the same time, wildfires, a million and a half acres were burning and, right. and choking up Anchorage. Like, I was amazed way up north. This is what we're, we're seeing. I'm used to Long Island Sound where the water's heated up and all the lobsters have moved north and right. you know, all these different species coming and all this sort of stuff. Um, but the other piece, so we just, I feel like as a society, we have this weird relationship to the ocean where um, we see it as a victim, not as a sort of protagonist, um, as a sort of uh, one of the solutions we can leverage in the air climate change. So huh. the, the Green New Deal only mentions the ocean one time, wow. <laughs> which is stunning for me to work out in the water. Like we have, there's more U.S. territory underwater than above. Right? right, and our backs are to the sea when we're thinking about climate change, and we're thinking about soil sequestration and wind and um, um, solar and all these, and you know, reimagining our our grids, and that's all absolutely essential. But we have this powerful resource that has historically played an incredibly central role in um, uh, sort of controlling uh, and limiting human um, climate impacts, and we just it's not part of our our uh, imagination. So we actually worked on the the um, a blue new deal um, to, in order to begin working with folks to incorporate sort of the oceans into the vision of what our set of climate solutions are. So the report, yes, it's totally dire. Yeah. But you know, let's go out and let's go out to sea and see see if we can really you know flip the script a bit. Right. Yeah. That's so interesting too because I've talked to so many people about the green new deal and everybody's excited about how it's kind of including agric land based agriculture in a way that you know it we haven't been making those connections between food production and environment before, but, you know, everyone's talking about, oh, wow, it's so great that we're talking about soil, but that's so true. I haven't heard anyone talking about it in the context of the oceans. That's I mean, we, we talk about replanting the redwoods to soak up carbon. Well, our redwoods of the ocean are kelp forests, right? Right. Um, you know, we call them the sequoias of the sea. They're just this really incredibly powerful um, 
uh, sort of, you know, carbon technologies. And it's, um, and at the same time, because we can grow our seaweeds, and we talk more about this later, but and use them as fertilizer, we can soak up that carbon, that nitrogen, and bring it and sequester it in, in the soil um, as a fertilizer, as a compost. So, like, bridging the land and sea, I think, is huge uh, potential. But again, it's just, I've always scratched my head over people's uh, conception and relationship to the sea. I guess it's just that we can't see that. 40% of the U.S. population lives on our, in coastal counties. Huh. Right? Where it's just, this is not this isolated thing. But then you go to the ocean advocates, and they'll, you know, what they're really thinking about is conservation. Right. Like how do we set aside marine zones? And I say to them, and they're good friends of mine, I say, you know, that's great, but you could turn the entire ocean into a marine park and it's going to die in the yeah. air of climate change unless you have engines breathing life back into the ecosystem. And I'd argue that's, you know, us as farmers, um, then uh, you're, you don't have a solution to climate change. Yeah. And then the other sector of the ocean people, they're all obsessed with what fish to eat, which is a good mm. discussion to have. And they're like apps of red, greens and blues. And it's so confusing as a consumer. <laughs> it's always changing. A third of the fish are mislabeled. And so they're yeah. just like, screw it. I'm going to go eat some chicken. Right. That's kind of where the state of our debate is. Right. Totally. Well, and yeah, I want want to talk more about the solutions, but just going back to um, that story you were just talking about going to Alaska and seeing the impact on the fishery there. I did want to ask you a little bit about your history as a fisherman and how that informed your path. There's a lot of that in the book. And, you know, we don't have enough time to, to, for you to tell all of your stories. But um, can you just talk a little bit about how that, that path kind of informed what you're doing now? Yeah. I mean, it's good we don't tell those stories because a bunch of them are pretty salty. You know, like, <laughs> my favorite review of the book is this guy's like, you know, liked it, but I sure feel bad for his mom. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> amazing. My, my mom would 100% say she's not, she's not here anymore, but she'd, she'd 100% agree. But no, I mean, you know, I was, I was born up in Newfoundland, this little village, most eastern point in all of North America, you know, houses painted red, greens, blues, lived next to a fisherman's co-op, you know, just the iconic artisanal small-scale fishery. Yeah. And I wanted to be, my hero were, you know, to be a fisherman. I didn't want to be an astronaut. I certainly didn't want to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, so, you know, and the question is why um, did I want to become a fisherman? And it wasn't just that I was surrounding them by them, but it was, you know, they go on their own boat. They're their own bosses. Mm -hmm. They succeed and fail on their own terms. Uh, and they have this pride of feeding the country. Like, they're just these, to me, this was the kind of job I wanted. And we used to say, you know, we want jobs that we can write and sing songs about. Yeah. Like, no one's writing songs about hedge fund managers, but they write hundreds about coal miners, steel workers, fishermen, and farmers, right? Because yeah. these are, like, soul-filling jobs. So the reason I say that is my journey from commercial fishermen, you know, I started in Gloucester and Lynn, and then was in the Bering Sea, Cod stocks crashed, you know, and it was the height of industrialized fishing then went to the salmon farms in northern Canada, which was really destructive, and then ended up now in my, you know, where I am now as a restorative ocean farmer. But that, the, the common thread there was this search of how do I keep that, this sort of heart and soul of what it is to be a fisherman. I've had to say goodbye to chasing fish, and I really miss that so much. And quite honestly, it's pretty embarrassing to grow vegetables. It was not the life plan but um uh underwater but i i still get to feed my community i still get to own my own boat um i still succeed and fail on my own terms like those that pieces of my identity i think it's still a job that we can be 
proud of, a job that has, you know, has meaning. So that's, that's been the common thread. I think a lot of environmentalists think their mistake is they're like, oh, we'll just pay off coal miners, you know, we'll transition them out and we'll give, give them good checks. But that's not what we want. We want these, or like, we'll get them jobs doing God knows what call centers or something. Right. But no, we, we, we had to cherish jobs in society that we really loved. And we, if, as we think about climate solutions, we need to create an entire economy that has meaning associated with it. It's not just by getting a paycheck. Yeah, absolutely. And so you decided to, to switch over to, to farming. I mean, it's a much longer story, but for the sake of time, we'll <laughs> skip forward. Um, and then, you know, I know you started as an oyster farmer, and um, you actually experienced um, this extreme weather event at, that spurred kind of the next chapter, right? Hurricane Sandy yeah. destroyed your farm. Exactly. I mean, you know, I was around when the cod stocks collapsed. Uh, in Newfoundland, that wiped out the wild fish that I was involved in, and then here I am, a canary in the coal mine for a climate crisis that you know suddenly arrived a hundred um, uh, years earlier than expected. Like it was supposed to be this slow lobster boil, mm-hmm. and instead, as a oysterman, it was here and now. So yeah, my whole farm got wiped out two years in a row: Hurricane Sandy, Hurricane Irene, ninety oh percent of my crop gone. 40% of my gear, and again, two years in a row. It's one thing about uh, one time, but you get it two years, you realize this is the new normal. And so, um, and you know, that's the thing, like, climate change isn't this, it's not, a, for me at least, it's not about birds and bears and things, it's really about um, the economy. You know, there are going to be no jobs on a dead planet. Right. And that's, and I lost my job because of it. But at the same time, just like all of us, I think, in this era of climate change, it's really scary and um, sort of horrifying, but there's also this um, uh, uh, opportunity with our backs at the wall to like, turn around and really innovate and get creative. I think as humans, we're kind of at our best when we're screwed. <laughs> like when things mm-hmm. are just really dark is when we do all this cool stuff. So yeah, that's I didn't so invent. true. Like weirdly, yeah. right? It's like yeah. sometimes the right? biggest inspiration is like you just have to, right? <laughs> it's like oh. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just a refusal to leave the water, and mm. I think a lot of a lot of us are in that. Um, you know, my my uh, my wife's a mental health nurse and at at a university, and she's just dealing with essentially a mental health crisis on campus. Mm. And it's interesting. She's trying to reimagine. Okay, what is uh, because of like climate change and all the things that the, the kids talk about climate change all the time. It's stunning. Mm. Um, and so the question is like, as a mental health nurse, how does she think about herself and her work in this era of climate change? I feel like we're all going through that transformation. So I had to do yeah. it as an instrument. Right. So you turned around and you created this new system, and it's referred to as restorative ocean farming. What does it look like? Sure. I mean, I'd say I didn't invent anything. Like, what I did was I'm part of a river of 5,000 years of history. So the first restorative ocean farmers were, as far as we can tell, were um, indigenous um, uh, communities in Washington State who created clam walls. A little like walls mm. in order to cultivate clams. Right. So those were the first farmers. And then, you know, an Irishman got shipwrecked in France, and he thought he made some nets to capture some birds. And instead, uh, all this muscle, these mussels stuck to these nets. So he said, okay, I'll be, you know, he invented <laughs> mussel farming. And now it's one of the centers of mussel farming. And so, you know, what I did was try, I synthesized everything I knew I stole, I borrowed, and tried to create a model of that made sense to grow in the ocean. So right. what, yeah, what it is, is it's essentially just a rope scaffolding system, right? Really, really simple. If you're going to 
grow and do architecture under the water, you want to be a willow, not an oak, right? You don't mm-hmm. want to fight it with pens and buildings and everything. You just want to bend with the storms and the weather and then pop back up. So just buoys and rope, there are anchors at the edge of the farm, ropes up to the surface, and then horizontal lines down below. Um, the surface is about 8 to 10 feet. Okay. And from there, we grow our seaweeds vertically downwards, like kelp, and then we have scallops in lantern nets, uh, mussels in mussel socks, and um, have uh, cages uh, with oysters and then um, clams down in the bottom. And they're all different species you can grow, but just using this simple infrastructure um, has been the secret for me because it's just not that expensive to, to build and operate. Right. And why choose those species? Like what, what is beneficial about having those particular um, species all together, the mussels, clams, seaweed? Yeah. Yeah. So I just, this stuff, I mean, I, the, the, the mistake aquaculture made originally is it grew, a, it grew what people wanted to eat. Mm. So wild, you know, we had a palate based on tuna, salmon, stuff like that, all this whole wild fishery. So everybody's like, okay, there's salmon collapsing, tunas collapsing, let's grow those salmons and tunas. But that doesn't necessarily mean that's what makes sense to grow in the ocean. That's just trying to meet existing um, market demand. And so what instead what, and so it turns out that those species that the market wants you to grow, they, you know, you got to feed them an incredible amount. Mm -hmm. They poop all the time and they swim away. So there's a whole sector of us are like, okay, why don't we look at the ocean and ask, what do you want us to grow? And when you ask it that, like ask the ocean and look at it as a unique agricultural space, it says, why don't you grow things that don't swim away, you don't have to feed, um, and that all they do is just soak up sunlight and nutrients in the water, and your job is just to sort of cultivate that. So that's the line that we draw, like zero input food. And then we only grow, we're working all over the country, but... We only grow native species. So in every place, we'll do a landscape analysis. So for me, it really made sense to grow this, this particular mix of shellfish and, and uh, seaweed just because it's, it's you know, local and uh, native the ecosystem. Right. So, I, I mean, I, I love that idea that, you know, growing what, what makes sense for the actual environment <laughs> rather than what people um, are used to eating, right? And, I mean, that, that's sort of like the crux of so many of the issues we have with the food system, right? right. Is being like, well, exactly. everybody wants beef, so we'll figure out ways to get them that or something that tastes like it yeah. rather than like what should we grow where we live and what yeah. the earth can provide us with, right? Um, exactly. But, you know, most people will say, well, you know, how are you going to create a market for it? Like, what, well, yep. how are people going to eat? You're going to get them to eat kelp, for instance. So how do you respond exactly. to that? How are you going to get people yeah. to eat seaweed? <laughs> yeah. First, just to say I'm deeply sympathetic. You know, mm-hmm. like seaweed was absolutely <laughs> disgusting to me. And like I said, <laughs> embarrassing to grow. I used to tell people I was grow- on the docks, I was growing underwater hemp just so I wouldn't get beat up. You know, it's like <laughs> I totally get it. Um, but, um, but it is the appropriate crop for, you know, sort of this climate era because it's zero input. So I'd, um, a couple pieces. One is... You know, our chefs, they're put on earth at this particular historical moment in order to take disgusting food that's climate resilient and make it beautiful and delicious. Mm. Right? Like if they can't do that, they should get another job. Right? That's literally why they're here. And once you dive in, so my mistake originally was I worked with a lot of seafood chefs. Seafood chefs are great, but they're not great with plants. So I started working with chefs that really specialized in making plants delicious. And there's one I work with, Brooks Headley, who specializes in making vegetables unhealthy. 
Right. <laughs> so he took the kelp, and we got some recipes in the book of barbecue kelp noodles of, and parsnips and breadcrumbs, right? And so you get mm. this incredible heat of the barbecue sauce, that crunch of the, the breadcrumbs, that roundness of the parsnips, and the noodles just like great mouthfeel. And you, you, no one even blinks at it. It just tastes like a delicious dish. So part of, you know, trying to de-sushify um, and create sort of a, um, a new range of, of tastes and flavors around seaweed is, has been key. I think um, the other thing we discovered like I discovered as I was doing this was um, there's an entire lost Western culinary history of seaweeds. Like we, mm. whoever's lived near the ocean, people have been eating seaweeds forever. So yeah. it used to be a bar snack in Irish and Scottish bars. There was the kelp highway all through um, uh, Chile, um, Peru and others where people were cooking with uh, seaweeds, uh, kelp especially all the time. There was, um, you know, the Italians used it in sauces and fermented on, um, on and on and on. So part of this is rediscovering that flavor. The last thing about flavors I'd say is that um, uh, everywhere we grow, what we found is it has a different flavor. So mm. like our southern region kelp has a different mouthfeel, different coloring, and it has a, it's a mi- very mild, mild flavor. It doesn't taste like what you think of as seaweed. Everybody eats my seaweed, and they're like, oh, this doesn't taste like seaweed. Hmm. You know, they're just surprised because it's so gentle. And with thousands of plants in the ocean, we're going to learn this new marouar, like all these different flavors, just like we know of tomatoes and arugulas and spinaches. Like, we just haven't done that underwater, and this is our chance to do it. Last thing I'd say is, yes, we're going to try to change taste, but changing taste is slow and right. hard. Just need to recognize that. Um, oh, by the way, McDonald's had a seaweed burger in the 1990s called <laughs> the McLean. Do? <laughs> it doesn't right. exist anymore. <laughs> no, that was there for five years and became the official huh. burger of the National Basketball Association. What? <laughs> so, <laughs> that is the like, weirdest, I think that is definitely the weirdest um, fact that has ever been shared on the farm before. <laughs> right? It's so <laughs> odd, right? And, you know, they're about to introduce a new plant burger, so, you know, maybe we're coming uh, full circle. Right. But, um, so there's the food piece, but one of the reasons I have real confidence is that I looked at the soy industry, which is extremely destructive, mm. monoculture, addictive pesticides, and we're not that because we're zero input food. But a bunch of hulking soy guys sat down in the 50s. They're like, we're never going to get Americans to eat soy. Huh. What are we going to do? And they came to the conclusion, they're like, let's put it in everything. Right. Let's weave it into all the, and it is everywhere. <laughs> like, and you don't even you know, know it. So you just have to you get don't seaweed even in things that, yeah, that you have no idea exactly. it's even in there. And so seaweed's being used as bioplastics now in the London Marathon for water bottles. It's being used, we use it for fertilizers, uh, feeds, um, uh, coarse cosmetics, and things like that. Like, the fact that we can weave it into all these existing industries and grow them, um, that's what gives me a lot of hope. Like, it's food plus. Right. Uh, that's yeah that that's really fascinating um okay we have to take a quick break uh when we come back more with brent smith author of eat like a fish this episode is brought to you by wisconsin cheese wisconsin has storied cheese history that begins with swiss german and italian settlers in the 1800s and continues today with nonstop innovation and award-winning artisanship. Wisconsin was the first state to establish cheese grade standards and the first to require that every cheese plant be overseen by a licensed cheesemaker. It is the only place outside of Europe where one can pursue an elite master cheesemaker certification. 
All of this helps Wisconsin Cheese win more national and international cheese awards than any other state or country. Take, for example, Decatur Swiss Cheese Co-op, who have made cheese since the 1940s. Steve Stetler is a Wisconsin master cheesemaker who developed several new cheeses for the co-op, including a European-style Havarti, a Swiss lace cheese called Stetler Swiss, and a Colby Swiss marbled cheese. His cheeses have won awards at the Wisconsin State Fair and the World Championship Cheese Contest. To learn more about Wisconsin's award-winning cheesemakers, visit wisconsincheese.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Katie Kiefer, and I'm the host of What Doesn't Kill You here on HRN. Every week, I sit down with journalists, authors, scientists, or activists to identify and explain some of the key issues in our food system. I've done shows on food waste, labor issues, meat production, water, you name it, I cover it. You can find What Doesn't Kill You wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report. I've been talking to Bren Smith, an ocean farmer and author of Eat Like a Fish. So, Bren, we were talking about a lot of um, connections between what you do and environment uh, before the break. And, you know, you talked a lot about the fact that the things that you grow, seaweed, oysters, are zero input. Um, other than zero input, what what are some of the other environmental benefits of farming this way? Sure. Yeah. So, um, like uh, the, the sustainability is really about lessening impact, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of the zero input piece. You know, less water, less fertilizer, less feed, stuff like that, less land. Right. But we but in this era of climate change, we need a food system that actually regenerates our our um, ecosystem. And so like kelp, for example, soaks up five times more carbon than land-based plants, right? It's just, it's, it's, that's why the, the New Yorker called it the culinary equivalent of the electric car, right? Mm. So it's a powerful sink. Kelp also and oysters, mussels soak up an incredible amount of new, um, nitrogen. This is just what they naturally need to, to, to grow. And there's too much carbon, there's too much nitrogen in our waterways. Mm-hmm. And so this is just a chance to add, and if you listeners know, but nitrogen is causing the dead zones all over the globe. There are over 700 of them where they're just complete oxygen depletion because there's too much nitrogen flowing around. Right. Um, they function as uh, artificial reefs. So there's just all these, you know, we have this structure and all these different species together working together, and that attracts fish. And in fact, some of the best fishing in the whole area is on my farm because there's just you know a ton ton going on. People have looked at the farms and they um, see them as uh, 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 small scale uh, uh, storm surge barriers, right? Which mm-hmm. can which can if, if they're along our coast coastlines reduce the impact of uh, storm surges. So we, I mean, I don't want to oversell this. There are tons of problems we can challenges we're we're facing, but mm-hmm. it really does seem like one of the you know, thousands of solutions we need out there to help mitigate climate change and rebuild ecosystems. Yeah, it kind of sounds, I mean, it basically sounds like the the ocean equivalent of what a lot of people are talking about, regenerative agriculture on land, right? In terms of it's not enough to just not deplete soil or not destroy the earth. We have to kind of figure out ways to um, fix it, right? And bring things back. And so it's kind of the equivalent in the ocean. Um, yep. What when you say there are a lot of challenges? What are some of the challenges you face in terms of growing this? 
fiasco. So, I mean, think of as a farmer, our soil, our equivalent soil turns over a thousand times a day. Mm. Right? It's just like a nightmare. Right? And we can't <laughs> augment it with fertilizer. So we can't sort of stabilize it. We just have to grow within those really dynamic conditions. And everything's underwater, so we can't see what we grow. Like, mm. and I don't swim, so like, I have no idea what's going on under there. Right? You and don't so, swim at all? No. A no, le- most, fisher- most <laughs> northern fishermen don't know how to swim. Really? Like, like, yeah, we just say it prolongs your death. Oh. You know, like you fall in, <laughs> out in the Grand Banks, just like calm down, say goodbye to everybody, and, you know, just okay. let it all beat up. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That <laughs> no, no. no. Um, so... so um, so one of the challenges is some years my seaweed will be three feet long, other years it'll be 15 feet long mm. because of that different, that, that you know, the all different nutrient profiles year to year. That's hugely challenging. You can think about, you know, having to predict, watch that predict what markets I'm going to sell it in is baby leaf kelp or long leaf or I'm going to do fertilizer or things like that. So that's why we've sensors, I'm not a techie, but sensors have been absolute key on the farms. We've started to embed sensor packets in four different states. And that gets really interesting because our um, in four states this year, our farmers got paid to harvest data. So they got paid $25,000 to harvest the data, and that got um, uh, a tech company um, wow. um, got it all. And so the farmers own their own data, but the synthesized data went up to the tech company. So suddenly, can you have a farm that's you know growing food, um, but then also harvesting data and harvesting things like carbon and ecosystem services. So you have multiple forms of income on a farm. I mean, that's so like there's a challenge that we can't see what we grow and our soil turns over, but then also there's a real opportunity, I think, to, 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 to create, the, um, you know, sort of harvestable income streams through data. Huh. Another challenge is, um, and I think a lot of everybody in food has this challenge, which is, one thing to grow things, um, things to sell things, but infrastructure and food logistics is so complicated. Like my model works when you're out in the water. Mm. As soon as you hit the land, I face everything that other small scale um, farmers face. Right, like buildings are expensive. Yeah. Supply chain and you know infrastructure. Those processing plants and things, the margins are really low. Mm. You know, and I think people don't understand that. You know, they're like you know pennies. Um, uh, uh, on each, uh, uh, you know, on, on each product. So um, that's a huge challenge. The other challenge is staying ahead of the climate curve. So water temps and stuff are just changing so fast. I'm at the southern region of where kelp can grow, my type of kelp, sugar kelp. Mm. In 10 years, I'm going to have to be growing something else. So our R&D needs to be moving quickly and ahead of the um, uh, pace of climate change so that I'm prepared to grow one of these other thousands of crops, you know, when the conditions really really change the other thing and i go all day about problems like you know, <laughs> <laughs> i like it problems but i think the other challenge is there's a lot of uses for this for different types of seaweed but it's less it's it's it, the price points really off from farming so wild harvest is a lot cheaper to do than farming mm-hmm. so and the existing uses of the market are so used to wild harvest and, you know, again, I've got great friends that wild harvest, and I don't criticize them at all. We need to, you know, start farming, and but it's just more expensive. So making sure that price point is uh, matched is just, is um, uh, you know, it's just challenging. Yeah. Well, and, you know, kind of speaking to, you know, the costs, and the, I know there are a lot of challenges related to the to costs, but one thing that struck me is it seems like the startup costs for starting a farm like this are actually quite low, 
Um, yeah. And I mean, I, I talk to a lot of young or beginning farmers who are trying to make it, you know, farming on land. And the cost of land is just incredibly Brutal. prohibitive. Yeah. And I mean, Brutal. to make yeah. it on, as a beginning farmer on land is really, really hard if you're trying to do like a small, diversified farm. Um, what does it cost for a beginning farmer who, to start a farm like this? Totally. So um, it's funny, we have a lot of young land-based farmers coming to us because exactly that. It's just so expensive um, mm-hmm. on land. And our, so we, basically, if you have an, a lease, and a lease is, well, at least my area, it's about $50 an acre per year, right? So really cheap for that, those water rights. Right. And so if you have, a, um, you know, 20 acres of boat, and you have between, depending on the place, twenty to say fifty thousand dollars. It just depends on the region. Out here, it's twenty thousand um, dollars. You can be up and growing, and um, your first year. Hmm. Um, uh, and the reason is because we don't have to water, we don't have to feed, we don't have to fertilize. We're not don't have much gravity, so we don't need a lot of infrastructure. Um, just ropes and buoys. It's really, really um, it's pretty, uh, pretty cheap. But you know, I think of it as sort of the nail salon model of the sea: um, low capital costs, minimal skill requirements, and it's. I mean, you got to be willing to be out there in the winter. Yeah, um, and that's what I've had to learn. <laughs> kind of like things that kind of I love and are pretty um, straightforward as a from a fisherman, land based farmers, and others that come. It's just they might be great at growing, but you know, boating skills and, and, and sort of the, the some of the extremity of the weather um, they're not used to. Yeah, and um, how long are most of those leases? Like, is there enough um, stability in, in, like, an ocean lease for a farmer to know that, you know, they can lease that space and it's not going to be taken away from them and, you know, after totally. a year, after they get their equipment? or Totally. It's a really, um, and it, it, a really important question. It depends region or region. Mm. Um, and you either lease from the town, in my area, the town, the state, or the federal government based on how far out it is. So the first little bit, it's town leases, and then it moves to state. Um, and we sign um, uh, leases either five to ten years, um, and then op- options to renew. And mm. so it's good. So the community is a lever of sort of democratic control that if we are screwing up, they can revoke the lease after five years and then, you know, or 10, but that we have, we have, um, we look at first right of renewal and, um, uh, that's out here in new England. Um, other California is a whole nother challenge because they actually haven't given, um, a new lease out in about 19 years, I think, hmm. for shell fishing or anything. New York is interesting. It's like, it's actually not legal to grow kelp, or seaweeds in New York state. We have three farms right now that integrated shellfish and seaweed farms, but the farmers aren't allowed to sell their seaweed. We're hoping to launch a campaign this year, legalize the other weed in New York because (laughs) we can grow it. And, uh, but why is it um, illegal? That's so strange. Well, it's not legal. Like it's never been done or legalized Uh, in New York. So it's, there's, so we need to pass. I mean, we wrote the legislation here in Connecticut. We're working in California. There's been great work in, 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 in Alaska. So we need to do that, um, uh, 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 state to state as we move through. It's so it's not, Um, it's not illegal. It's just that no one has ever really tried to sell it. So there's no, okay. Huh? Yeah. Like as I, and no one tried to farm and sell it, Mm -hmm. but you think of permitting. So I, I think what the, it's going to look very different in different regions. So I, I think um, New England has a long tradition of, of shellfish farming and, and leases and a lot of infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And so this, 
the move into a polyculture model, which we've been doing, has made a lot of sense. I think somewhere like California, where we're working in San Diego and Humboldt County, we have sort of leases and moving forward there, but is much more like a land trust model, mm. where we take 2,000 acres, say, we call it a you know climate zone, and we do a mix. So we have our farmers reforesting, so just planting, right, not the harvest. Okay. As, uh, so they have carbon sinks. We have all these pre-permitted plots where people can farm. And then if they leave, you know, other farmers can come in. So it's just like a permanent spot. And then you have artisanal fisheries. And then you have just this organized zone of um, to allow for um, reforestation farming and, and fisheries. Uh, but it's owned by an intermediary like a land trust, right? So it's not mm-hmm. privatized. It's all protected. It's just um, people have pre-thought the use of it. So those sea trusts, I think we're going to begin seeing in, in, uh, in, in different areas. And that might, you know, for those of us that, for those of you, listeners that really know land-based farming, then it becomes kind of like an agroforestry model hmm. where, so you have tons of people reforesting the, like 91% of kelp forests are gone in Northern California. It's right. just brutal because of urchins and all sorts of stuff. Well, if we create an army of folks reforesting and then inside those forests doing partial harvesting to huh. do, to sell, yeah. but they're getting paid to both forest and to run their own, you know, small business, small farm in there. I think we get into a much more climate resilient model. Right. Well, and you mentioned earlier that you're on the Southern, like where you are is the Southern end of where you can grow kelp, I guess, on yeah. the East coast. Can you talk a little bit about like where, you know, I feel like there's so much potential with kelp, um, but where can it be grown? Like, it, I feel sure. like it's limited where it can be grown, right? Yeah. Well, there are 250 types of kelp, and ah. I grow a sugar, sugar kelp, which is a northern species. Um, and so there, are, you know, there we've got folks we work with in Mexico that grow Chile and, and you know, Iceland and all different places. Um, so it depends on the species. Um, then there are species, other things like asparagopsis, which is the red seaweed that we use for, um, is really good for, for animal feed because it significantly reduces methane output by 58% if you feed cattle a 2% diet. It's, it's just pretty stunning. But that's a, that's a southern climate species like Gulf of Mexico. Okay. No, one's, no one's really farming it down there at this point. So, I, again, it's part of that landscape analysis of looking about what makes sense to grow where. Right. I think the big challenge is, you know, just I really know how to grow here in New England, mm-hmm. like in Long Island. Like I know my patch of water. Every patch of water is going to be different, and every species mix is going to be different. Right. So, it, and can you grow it enough in a certain area to make a profitable farm? That's always the question. So, when we work with farmers, we've got a waiting list, by the way, of four thousand farmers to, to do the training. Yep, to do our green because so Greenwave, you know, has a training. Uh, program and it's pretty intensive for to right. help people get started, um, but we've got a waiting list of four thousand people, and um, that's incredible. Uh, yeah, it's just it's kind of heartbreaking because there's yeah. just no way we can meet, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, this demand. But the um, uh, we we encourage people to start just with two lines, right? Just okay. to grow. So to start with kelp because it's pretty easy. And just put in the gear and do what permaculture does, right? Permaculture, you're supposed to watch your land for a year, right? See where right. The, the rain runs and the sunlight and all this sort of stuff. Look, same for ocean farming. So put in a couple lines and then just watch your currents, your growth rates, how your gear is moving. And then from there, we're able to, you know, estimate whether you can create a successful farm based on the, amount, the yields that you're, um, uh, you're getting. So, 
you know, a lot of people come in and they want to just jump in and put, you know, plant 25 acres, 50 acres right away. And we, we really encourage people start very small, build your business model after those tests. Mm-hmm. And then, because it might not be the right patch of water, right? right. But it, it, so you just got to find one with the right, right mix, which, again, uh, there's a lot of nutrients in the water. So it's not that challenging, but we, we don't want people to, you know, um, go slow approaches. Makes sense as a farmer. Right. Yeah. So we started with kind of this like dire situation. Um, <laughs> when I, I just was like, Hey, let's start with the climate report. That is really depressing. Yeah, and, um, <laughs> um, but you know, it, we've been talking about some, some really incredible solutions and, um, you know, the fact that you have, and there's a lot of challenges also that we talked about, but do, do you feel like the fact that you have 4,000 people waiting for that training, does it, does it make you hopeful? Like, are you hopeful that this kind of ocean farming will really take off? Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, our climate winds are at our back, right? I mean, mm-hmm. there's a nutrient deficiency on land, um, whether it's, you know, we're running, you know, we're running out of land as a, as a resource. Um, we have rising seas, you know, there are all these issues. Our food system's going to be pushed out to sea in part, mm-hmm. and our wild fisheries just can't handle it. I mean, that's clear from the UN report. Right. So ocean farming is going to be a, a core piece of the puzzle. Um, I'd like it to be restorative ocean farming, of course, is, is our model, but we're going to be getting more uh, food from the sea no, no matter what. So that gives me incredible hope. The big question for me is, will we build it the right way? Like, what's exciting for me in this space is we got a blank slate and we get to kind of take all, everything that's been learned and all the mistakes on land, all everything that's been learned and made in like industrial aquaculture, and just kind of do food, do agriculture right this time, right? Let's not yeah. privatize our seed. Let's make sure beginning farmers have access to land. Let's make sure we weave social justice into the DNA of this and make sure the folks that have been left behind by the Industrial Revolution are in the front of the line and get the benefits. Let's make sure that farmers own more of that whole value chain so they're they're actually they're good middle class jobs as opposed to you know part-time jobs like they are now on uh on land like that's exciting mm-hmm. but the sharks are going to come i've got a part in a book called swimming with sharks mm-hmm. where we already have some of the biggest companies in the world um uh coming and leasing property coming out and you know essentially trying to take over the industry right and that really scares me like if yeah how are we going to defend our land and build, do them? What we think of as the most exciting part of this is build a truly regenerative economy um, uh, based on this opportunity. Of and so our idea is, you know, Green Wave Reefs is what we build, where we have twenty-five to fifty small-scale farms in an area, a hatchery and a processing plant in a low-income neighborhood, and then rings of entrepreneurs doing value-added products, mm. and then you replicate that reef. And I'm hoping that distributed production and sort of wiring these farms and knowledge networks, having farmers work closely and sharing knowledge will give us a competitive advantage against the huge monoculture companies that are kind of come into our space. Cause they're, you know, they will come, but I think, um, you know, I, I, we know we've learned a lot and, and, um, hopefully the food movement will, you know, defend our rights and help us get there. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I hope that you got your song about, an ocean farmer, maybe at some point. Right? <laughs> yeah, one of your listeners got to write it. Maybe somebody will, will write yeah. you a song. <laughs> I definitely need a bar song. It's good, like too boring in my bars. We get nothing to sing yeah, about it except for old fishermen. It could help inspire some more ocean farmers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah oh. exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Brent, so much for being here. I really appreciate it. 
Yeah, honored to be on. Thanks so much. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and share it. I'll see you next week. This program is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com backslash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.